Happy Mother's Day to you. Um, le- message received here, like brunch and mimosas would have been like the way to go, like for future Mother's Day. <laughs> got it? Got it? Um, it's good to be with everybody again, especially after we were off for last week. Um, it is, there are stings down here. I don't know if you can see them before you are, but the camping pile, um, it's been bigger in previous years. So good job, everybody. Like, remember most of your stuff. Um, if nobody grabs the bald left, like, it'll find a home, I promise. Um, but yeah, freebie, I guess, for softball coming up. So looking for one. Um, so either way, it's, it's good to be here. And I want to start, um, I want to actually start our time today by defining a problem. Um, and it's a problem that's very real for us um, as Christians and also as church, but it's not a new problem. Um, it's something that I'm confident you've heard about, but as I go further and further into this particular job, I've now uh, been pastor here at Revolution for five years, and as I go further and further in this job, it's something that I'm increasingly convinced doesn't work the way that you might think. And here, here it is. The problem is that our relationship with Jesus brings us into direct conflict with our culture. Now, here's what I don't think that means. I'm going to be careful here. I don't think it means becoming like a culture warrior and protesting against the wickedness that you see in the world. I don't think it means that. And I also don't think that it means trying to make our country or any country an explicitly kind of Christian nation. I think that we've seen time and time again that doing that leads um, to things that tend to hurt the Church of Christ a lot more than they help help it. And that's probably, if for no other reason than because it's at odds with our Savior, who had all the opportunity in the world to seize power and instead chose to turn the other cheek. But here's what that conflict does mean, I think. I think it means that if we're going to grow in our relationship with and our resemblance to Jesus, that we need to pay attention to the ways that our cultural embeddedness, the ways that we're kind of settled in the place that we live and in the the country that we live, we need to pay attention to the ways that that embeddedness might lead us astray. Now, before we get into any specific hangups this week, I want us to look at our ancestors and Christian faith for some guidance on this, because it turns out that this is by no means a new problem. It's probably the oldest problem the church has ever had. And here's one example of this conflict between the dominant culture and Christian faith that we see in the New Testament in the story of the early church. So in the Roman world, which is where the the early church is formed, although the lands that Rome as an empire had kind of conquered and were all joined together, the tensions between the peoples that were then like roped in with each other by virtue of being in the empire, those tensions persisted. So even among the Jews, right, we see that there's hostility between different sects um, and and different places in Judea, like between Jerusalem and Galilee and Samaria. And then even within Jerusalem, there's distrust between temple factions, um, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And of course, beyond Judea, like throughout the entire Mediterranean, there's this enmity that exists between Jews 
and non-Jews, and then all of this stuff, all of these tensions are historical, and they're emotional, and they're even, I would argue, extremely rational for the people they were experiencing. The, the Judeans, we have to remember, destroyed the Samaritan's temple once upon a time. They had a good reason to be mad at each other. And the Romans, of course, extorted taxes from everybody, and that's a decent reason to be upset sometimes. And then, you know, between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Pharisees believed the dead would rise one day, and the Sadducees didn't. That's a pretty big thing. To, to disagree about. And so the point is, is that the people in that world at that time had good reasons to distrust each other. But, but one of the core and key beliefs of Christianity is that whoever you were dies when you come into the faith. And who you are is co-equal. You're a co-equal sibling, not just with each other, but you're a co-equal sibling with Christ. And our religion then insists, if we're going to practice it rightly, that these barriers and these differences that exist in the broader culture and that we're tied into, that those are to be ignored. So as we look back at the first church, we can ask, how did they handle the reality that their faith was calling them to live in a way that was at odds with the culture? And the answer is they didn't handle it very well, like not at first. So eventually they started talking about this problem. They did come up with some things to do. And they did three things that are going to kind of be our foundation. They preached unity, and they insisted on grace, and they practiced communion together. Now, why were those three things so important? Well, they were, it was in part because there were three things that Jesus taught them, and they'd set out to follow Jesus. But why are they still so central to the letters that we have from these Christians in the early church? And I think the answer is they're there because doing them turned out to be hard. And so it became important for them to remind each other all the time of their value, of their existence as kind of the plan for resisting this kind of dissension and and fighting in the community at large. Now, if that's what the early church did to fight its problem of division, how, what does this have to do with us, right? Well, in this series that we're, that we're in this week, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. And we're emphasizing, like the gimmick of this series, is that we're emphasizing both parts of that term. The disciplines we keep as faithful routines in our lives, and then also the spiritual comfort and help that we receive and guidance that we receive as we listen to God's voice. By listening to God in our hearts and keeping up practices with our minds and our bodies, we put ourselves in the best possible position to grow in our faith. But in our first two weeks of the series, in which we talked about prayer and talked about studying scripture, the only real obstacle that I was asking you to confront, right, was your own stubbornness or your own, like, desire to not do that. But this week, we're talking about something that's harder. We're talking about generous giving. And that means that we have a culture to contend with in addition to our own recalcitrance. Is that, I should have used that word. That was a mistake. I love, I, that's one of my very favorite words. But anyways, stubbornness, I guess. Um, <laughs> my apologies. The English teacher comes out sometimes. Um, anyways, here's, here's what I mean by all that. Everybody by that cultural embeddedness that's going to cause us to have trouble as we think about generosity. Everybody in this room, 
is surviving in the richest country in the world. We all know that. Nearly all of us have access to a level of wealth that is like inconceivable for more than half of the world's population. And if we're followers of Jesus, we can grasp and we know that our Christian responsibility with all of that wealth is to be generous. Everybody's on the same page here. But I would contend that nearly all of us, myself included, struggle with this challenge. And it's not because our hearts aren't in the right place. So this isn't one of those sermons where I'm up here to try and like pull on your heartstrings and convict you to do something, right? I would say that our hearts are in the right place, but the reality is that we live in a culture that is actively at war with our convictions. And so we may be wealthy, but we don't feel wealthy. I don't feel wealthy. Because somehow, even though I live in all of this privilege, my emotional experience and frankly, my financial experience is that I feel like I'm struggling to stay afloat most of the time. So how can I be? How can we be so rich but also still so struggling? Well, part of it, and this gets into the weeds, so I'm only going to mention it slightly, but we can, this is a total conversation for like, you know, over coffee one day. But I would argue the answer is because we're embedded in a society that saps what we have away from us while at the same time training us to generate more wealth for that society. That's the world in which we live. Now, in this trap that we're in, where we're rich but don't feel rich, I think we can see our reflection in the early church. Sure, our brothers and sisters in the faith 2,000 years ago might have said, sure, it's true that in Christ we're all one, but the Romans still take my taxes, and the Samaritans still hate my guts, and our kin are still enslaved, And the Pharisees say that we're going to hell, and, 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 and. So if you put yourself in that mindset, taking communion sure sounds great. But I imagine there were plenty of Christians that looked around and said, is this really enough? Is that enough? Now, I've taken a while to kind of get to the point this morning, but this is my hypothesis. Maybe it is. Maybe it is enough. We struggle with greed, let's face it, we do. They struggled with factions. But what might happen if we consider their example and apply it to our problem? Now earlier, there was a plan that they, I shared with you guys that they used, and it has these three parts. It has to do with what we teach, what we do, and how we wait. What we teach, what we do, and how we wait. If we know that our goal is to be radically generous, How do we get there? So we're going to talk about those three steps, right? And the first is this. Let's talk about sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's convictions. There's a helpful and famous story about this in the Gospels, right? In this story, Jesus is in the temple in Jerusalem. And the Bible says this. It says that he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money in, right? So into the donation box there in the temple. And many rich people put in large sums. And then, you know the story, right? Then a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. And then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly I tell you, the poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury. For all of them have contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had, to live on. So what's happening in this story, which which if you've been around the church, you've heard a million times. Well, I think in the story there's this contrast that's being set up, right, between how much this woman has, 
right? And then how generous she has been led in this moment to be. She has almost nothing, but she gives absolutely everything. Now, why is this a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because that dichotomy that we're looking at is one that intentionally echoes Jesus's life. It echoes Jesus's life. When it comes to the temple treasury, what is commanded of the Israelites is to give one-tenth of their income back to the officers of their religion. That's the, the law. One-tenth of your income back to the officers, the religion. And there's good reason for that. The reason is that priests don't derive a normal income. And so the people were commanded long, long, long ago by Moses to basically chip in to kind of keep the thing going. It all makes sense. And this is what the rich people in the story are doing, right? They're, because they're rich, you know, they're, they're giving their one-tenth. And because they're rich, that one-tenth actually turns out to be like a pretty significant amount of money, right? But what Jesus sees in the story is not the dollar amount, right? But he sees the spirit of the giver. So he praises the poor widow, and he says that she's put in more. And it's one of those things Jesus will say that confuses all of his disciples. He's like, well, I mean, it's not more. It's obviously not more. But in the eyes of Jesus, in the economy of Jesus, it is. Because for Jesus, right, it's never the number. It's the heart. Now, the widow in the story is given out of this deep personal conviction. And that conviction has led her to put her whole trust in her faith. And it's kind of literal in this scenario too because it's the temple's responsibility with all of those tithes to care for her and for all other widows that live there in the city. That's the way the thing works. Widows don't derive an income. The temple supports them. So what she's done is this kind of radical act of courage and hope that these priests that she depends on will care for her as generously as she is caring for them. I'm depending on the priests. I give the priests everything I have from the fullness of my heart, and I trust that they're going to show me that same trust and affection and generosity back. Right? In our own lives, I think we do this when we respond radically and respond generously to the Holy Spirit's leading in terms of our money. We can think of this as spontaneous acts of giving. It's these moments when we're moved passionately to share, even when it comes at great cost to ourselves. Now, here at Revolution, I saw many of you do this very thing three years ago when we stepped, even when we're like, the pandemic is happening and like the world's falling apart and like we never make our budget, just for the record. So like, like, that was bad. But at the same time, we felt, we saw this opportunity to step in and fight medical debt here in our community. And I put that call out to like this tiny little church and you guys uh, responded. And so we raised money and we partnered with this organization called RIP Medical Debt. And in the year 2019, so I guess a little before the pandemic there, we raised, our little community raised more than $15,000 spontaneously. And we used that to purchase erase and forgive almost $2 million of medical debt throughout Anne Arundel County. It was an amazing thing. It was so amazing, in fact, that we did it again two years later. We partnered this time with other churches around the state of Maryland, and collectively we raised $50,000, actually a little more than $50,000, 
we worked with RIP again, and this time we donated and relieved and forgave almost $8 million of medical debt, not just in Anne Arundel County, but across the whole Mid-Atlantic region. We bought all the debt that was for sale, like in, that, in our whole state, and a little bit of Virginia and Pennsylvania even, and in the district, and we forgave it. And that was awesome. You were moved by this specific need, and you went over and above in order to meet it, and it was amazing. Now, many of you still give this way. You do this when you respond to, to friends who have a need, or maybe pulling up the website for the SPCA when the Sarah McLaughlin song comes on, right? <laughs> and that action, that is a kind of spirit-led giving. And that's important if we really do believe the thing we say we believe, which is that God's Holy Spirit lives within us and is at work even now reshaping us, then it makes sense for us to learn to trust where that Spirit is leading and to kind of open up the floodgates of ourselves even when it is the last two pennies that we have in the world. And like the widow, when we do that, we are trusting that God is going to take care of us in the same way that we try to take care of others. And to our point this morning, this kind of generosity is meaningful also because it confounds the culture in which we live. It confounds a culture that preaches hoarding and greed. And I would say, good, let's confound it. But here's the thing, right? When we only give in moments of overwhelming emotion, that culture can still sneak in on the other side. I would call this giver's remorse. You might have had this experience. Whoa, I just charged $500 on my credit card to help replant the rainforest. Like, happy I did it, great thing to do, but I better chill out, right? And then when that happens, despite our best intentions, the well kind of dries up and we're back to hoarding in the ways that are conventional in our culture. And I'll tell you something that's not fun to hear. If you only combat the greed in our culture and the greed that is in your heart when you feel like it, you're going to be pretty underwhelmed when you look back at the end of any given year and what happened. Nobody, and I mean nobody, hits even that 10% goal of the Pharisees when they give only in this way. Or at least I've never met them. So, what can we do then? We have this, this kind of cultural pressure on us to live a certain way. We know that we want to resist it. We know what kind of things the Bible says to do. We know that we want to listen to the Holy Spirit and give generously when the, when the mood strikes us, when the Spirit convicts us. But that's not going to add up in the ways that we need it to. So what's the other part? Well, this is where the second example from the early church can help us. Because in addition to being people who are sensitive to the Spirit, we also are people who need to be disciplined in our past and our practices, right? And so there are these two passages that can help us understand how this works. The first is quite famous, and it has to do with the behaviors of those first Christians. It comes from Acts chapter 2, and it reads as follows. All who believed, meaning all the people that were joining the church in the early days, were together and they had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. So, 
two things here. First, we see this, this like much discussed in the church, this example of a commitment to commonality that's assumed in the first churches. That when a person becomes a Christian, they contributed faithfully from what they had, not just for the benefit of that little church, but for the benefit of all the people. Right? They held all the things in common. And this is a discipline that was clearly expected in that community. But we see this other thing that we don't talk about nearly as much, which is that we see that those Christians still had homes. They broke bread together because they had purchased bread to break. And they met together because they still had places to meet. So this then is a mix of giving generously and maintaining a kind of humble and relatively safe way of living. Now, I feel obligated to point that out, but I also want to be clear, like I'm not letting any of us off the hook with it either. Because instead of looking for like an escape clause as we look at these examples of, of early generosity, I think what we're clearly commanded to do is to look at the attitudes here, at the attitudes. Everybody's heart in this passage and in the early church is set on gladness and generosity and praising God and showing kindness towards others. That's where their heart is. And it's true that it's true this verse might make a convenient excuse for you to like have a big and pretty house, right? You're like, I have a big house, but it's I mean like we gotta have, we gotta meet somewhere. Like small group has to have a living room to be in, right? But I would say this. If you have if you oof, I'm saying a lot of things that are like hard. This is not a fun sermon to preach, just for the record. I'm trying to crack jokes because I need them. All right. But I'll say this. If you have a nice house and that house is always empty, you are missing the forest for the trees. There is discipline in this generosity, and that discipline leaves room for a certain degree of comfort, but it is still driven by an open-heartedness towards others. So that's Discipline Giving 101. What's Discipline Giving 102? Well, here we have to do a little bit of inference from Paul's letters, but the trend is clear. The people of the early church carried on the tradition of the tithe for the purpose of supporting other congregations. We leave out that last part kind of frequently when we talk about this. And this was a discipline that was based on their income, and its purpose was the continuation of faithful ministry. And here's what Paul says in a letter to the Corinthians. He says, Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then, when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. So, the idea here is that Christians from around the world are setting aside money from their income. Likely, we would assume, still the 10% that at least as Jews they would have been used to like contributing to the temple. And then they're sending it to the apostles in Jerusalem in order to distribute it. Now, this is not an exclusively spirit-led enterprise. That's the important thing to see not exclusively led, exclusively spirit-led enterprise. It's this matter of personal commitment and discipline. Now, I don't believe, I don't think any of us would believe that like church leaders were going around checking anybody's bank statements about this, right? 
But church leaders were being instructed to teach their congregations about the practice. So why was this important? Well, there's a really practical reason, right? Sending missionaries around the world and maintaining vocational pastors did take money. As just like the temple once took money for its upkeep, so does the work of missionaries and pastors in the world. But as logical as that might be, and as much as that's the argument that all of the Jews in the congregations were used to hearing about the temple, it's not the argument that the early church leaders make. Instead, what they say is this. They say, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. So they acknowledge like, the money has a practical need, but they're saying that's not why it's being given. Supporting the church may mean needs, but I think what we see here is that the real point is to use the currency of the culture in which you live to show gratitude towards God for sustaining you in that same currency. God meets us where we are, and he wants to be known. These are core beliefs in our faith, and they're things that we talk about here at Revolution all the time. God meets us where we are, where we are, and he wants to be known. When we give faithfully with our money, we are acknowledging the ways that he reaches out to us and sustains us. And we're using that same language to express thanksgiving back to him. Now, I want to be super clear here. Is that the only language? No, not at all. God speaks to us in a bunch of languages. He speaks to us in the kindness of others. He speaks to us in the wonders of the world around us. He speaks to us in his forgiveness of us when we make mistakes. And in the same way, we speak all of those kinds of languages back out to others, right? We speak the language of kindness. We wonder, right? We speak in the language of the wonders of the world by caring for the world around us. We forgive others as we have been forgiven. We're like speaking the language God speaks to us back out into the world. In every way God reaches out, we try to pour ourselves out. And money is one way, and we need to be careful not to neglect it. Now, in a letter to his mentee, Timothy, the actual word, English, teach your moment again. This is such a gross word. Mentad is actually what that's called. Did you know that? A mentor has a mentad. It's gross. That word's gross. So we're going to say mentee, even though it's bad, bad grammar. And his letter, you, the one thing you'll remember from this whole meeting, they're like visitors here this morning, they're like, the one thing you never want when I visit a church for the first time is to hear a sermon about money. Like, oh my gosh. And believe me, I'm, I'm with you. If I could have like winged a different sermon like right off the cuff, I would have done. But, ugh, but you'll remember the mentad. <laughs> Anyways, in this letter to Timothy, Paul reminds his mentee of the trickiness of wealth in a materialist culture. And he says this, he says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Teaching generosity then, according to Paul, has these two positive side effects. First, it trains us in that kind of responsive thanksgiving to God we just talked about. 
And then second, it helps us resist the real dangers that accumulating wealth can pose. And there's this infamous quote from John D. Rockefeller that points to this, right? Rockefeller was asked by a reporter right after becoming, I don't know, like getting $10 million, whatever like level of wealth he had accumulated. And he was asked by a reporter, how much is enough? And he replied, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. God would spare us that trap if we allow him to. So what are we saying? We're saying that disciplined generosity is a key part of growing in our Christ-likeness. It's not about the money, it's about our discipleship. We give routinely because that honors and reflects the steadfastness and the faithfulness of God to us. And we also give routinely because it trains us to resist that temptation that we are particularly prone to of greed. Now, what about number three, then, of our points? We give in response to the Holy Spirit. We give in ways that are disciplined. And that third part is that we are patient and gracious towards one another. We are patient and gracious towards one another. I'm not going to overwhelm you with chapters and verses about this, but the point is that when the early church was confronted by those deep ethnic divisions in their community, particularly regarding male circumcision, this is what they did. They came together and they said, Gentiles no longer need to be circumcised unless it was something their personal conscience required of them. Jews, meanwhile, were instructed to trust their Gentile neighbors' convictions about the matter. Now, we can and we should do the same kind of thing when it comes to how we are generous with our wealth. Do you have to give either spontaneously in the spirit or in ways that are disciplined by the tithe? No, you don't. You are free. No catch on that. You are genuinely, completely free. You don't have to do it. But my hope is that teaching on financial generosity is both a challenge and also an invitation to you to look for ways that you can resist the temptation to greed that is woven into the fabric of our country and our culture. At the beginning today, I said that we have a problem. We aren't conditioned to give freely in the ways that are modeled for us by Jesus. And if we want to be like Jesus, then we need to work on this. But here's the thing. We're not going to get anywhere by setting down rules, obsessing over the offering plate, or judging each other's apparent wealth, because here's the thing. We don't know what's going on in each other's lives or in their hearts. We're going to get where we want to go by being patient and by showing unconditional love and acceptance to one another. We're going to get there by celebrating the little steps that people take we're going to get there joyfully. So what can that look like for us right now? There are a few things that I want to share. First, I want to say that it's true that Revolution is an entirely self-funded church. Your faithfulness and your generosity here are my only sources of income. It's your pastor, and it's the only source of the money that we use to do things like rent this space or insure all of our equipment, which turned out to be really useful. Like That ended up being money well spent about a year ago when all our stuff was stolen. So like, it's how we pay for all the tools that we use and the website and all that kind of stuff, but we purchase curriculum for the kids and like a hundred other things, right? If you give faithfully or spontaneously in any amount, your two pennies or your $10,000 or whatever, all of that, all of that really does matter. And it's a moment in a sermon like this where I should tell you, thank you, thank you, because we wouldn't be able to go on here without it. My hope is that this year our budget can increase so that we can, one, get our head all the way above water for the first time in a long time, and then two, so we can move 
into, or we can look towards moving into a more stable rental space than the one we have here, where if you have kids back in the kids area, you know like no room is left in the kids area. So our hope is that we can move into somewhere that's a bit larger and has more space. Those are our goals. But we're not pursuing those goals in a way that's guided by fear or by guilt. We're gonna get there by grace. So if you don't give here, even if you're here every week, even if your kids are back there, whatever the situation, Here's the thing. That's okay. That's completely okay. If you are hesitant to give to any church for any reason, I fully understand that. There are a ton of examples out there of why it's a bad idea and you shouldn't do it. But at the same time, if you are somebody who considers me personally your pastor, I do want to say this. Giving generously from what you have is good for you and it is important for your discipleship. It doesn't have to be here. But in some way, making a habit of being generous to a cause that you support or to a friend in need, to an organization that you trust more than you might trust your local church, wherever it is, finding some way to to make a habit of being generous is important. And it's also important to give spontaneously in moments when you feel led to to do both the spiritual part and the discipline part of your spiritual discipline. And it's my job as a pastor to help encourage you in all of that. So we teach sensitivity to the spirit here, we practice our disciplines, and then we hold space for everybody to go at the pace and then whatever and at the comfort level that they have and where they are. So here's the closing challenge for this Sunday. I'm way over time. I'm sorry, it was the jokes, and also it was long, and I don't want I want to talk about something more fun <laughs> next week. So, but this is important. Here's the closing challenge. And it's it's little but maybe really real for some of you. On the back of your handout this week, there's a simple QR code for the with a link for the donation page to the Anne Arundel County Food Bank. Now, the food bank is in the middle of a spring fundraising campaign, and the food bank, if you've been there before, is an absolutely indispensable resource over in Crownsville for all of the food pantries that still exist in this county. They all use it. Lighthouse uses it. The food pantry we support at Heritage uses it. Everybody uses it. You guys use it at Revive. It's crucial. It's a good organization to support, and they need help. So in a little while, after we take communion, you're going to have a moment to pray back in your seat. And as you do, I am challenging you to ask if you are feeling spontaneously led to be generous towards the food bank. I'm not asking for anything for a revolution. doesn't matter. I'm not worried about revolution for the food bank. If you are, then either this morning or maybe sometime this week, because you can take the paper with you, scan the link and make a donation. It can be $1, any amount. But here's the thing. When you do it, don't just do it and forget it. When you do it, pause and pray. Pray and invite God to speak to you, to show you his kindness, to draw you in to this cycle of generosity that he intends for you, where he meets your needs, and then you have an opportunity to imitate him by meeting the needs of others. That is the work that's good for the soul. Recognizing what God gives you and then imitating God for the sake of others. And as we move ahead here at Revolution, this is our heart. We don't exist for ourselves alone. It's okay if this church falls apart and fails. It's fine. 
sad for me, but I'll go back to teaching people. I'll go get some mentats or something, right? <laughs> I'm going to be fine. We are partners in this community for the sake of our neighbors and to be a help and to be a witness to them of a different way of living and being. We want to model something different for this world. And the specific thing we want to do is to give people a taste of the world that God has in store. And so each little step that we take towards that kingdom matters. People see it, and it testifies to the power of the things that we believe. So friends, the closing point here is this. Be kingdom people. Let's be kingdom people. Let's be as generous as we can be. It's good for us, but even more than being good for us, it's good for this world that God loves and a world we want to love too.